What you're hearing is the theme to the 1920 film The Mark of Zorro, starring Douglas Fairbanks. And you're hearing that because, as part of my disrespecting the legacy of those who came before me and made my entire career possible series, I recently watched 1920's The Mark of Zorro, the first Zorro film. I did this because last week... I discovered that the genre of frat house comedies goes back many, many decades to at least the 30s. I did not know that. I found that out in the course of learning about Jack Oakey, who starred in movies that could be called the Van Wilder films of the 1930s. I had no idea that genre went back that far. So I started thinking, what other genres go way, 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 way back? And the first one that came to mind was Bond films. I figured there has got to be a silent era equivalent of Bond films. Here's why I assumed that. I assumed that because James Bond speaks to a very, very, very fundamental desire in many moviegoers, and that is the desire to be the world's most awesome dude. James Bond is the perfect dude. The classic line about him is that Women want him, and men want to be him. And also, statistically, a small percentage of the men want him, and women want to be him. Everyone thinks James Bond is awesome, is the point. And why wouldn't they? James Bond is awesome. He's important, he's dangerous, he's outstanding at his job, and, 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 very importantly, every woman in the world is lining up to fuck him. So... Every dude, especially like a 13-year-old boy who's wondering, like, what am I going to be like? They see James Bond and think, oh, maybe I could be like that older guys kind of realize that's not in the cards. And, and, let me also say this about James Bond, it's all effortless. It is effortless. He just is that guy. Once you get older, you realize if you if you ever had any chance of becoming anything even remotely approximating James Bond, the amount of work you would have to put in is insane. You just spend your whole life at the gym and studying Russian and then you're off to Singapore. It's not worth it. Not in this age of 4K video games. There are just too many games to play. There's too much delicious ice cream to eat. You don't become James Bond and that's all fine. But the movies are still a fun fantasy. So I figured there must be a long ago equivalent of the James Bond franchise. It took very little looking into it to realize, oh, Zorro. The Zorro films were basically the James Bond franchise of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So I watched the first one, 1920's The Mark of Zorro, starring Douglas Fairbanks, who does, of course, have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It is at 7020 Hollywood Boulevard. Hey, I know where that is. That's right between Madame Tussauds discount annex of Me too celebrities and the Bottoms Optional Froyo Shop. Oh, yeah, that's real close to me. Yeah, I know just where that is. Anyway, Douglas Fairbanks was a huge star in the silent film era, the movie The Artist. Remember The Artist from like 2011, <laughs> which was like, I liked it. It was like very Oscar baity. I think uh, 15 people saw it, but they all had a vote for the Academy Awards. So it won the Oscar for Best Picture. That is loosely based on Douglas Fairbanks because his somewhat ignominious distinction is that he did not make the transition to talkies. When films started having sound in the late 20s, early 30s, eh, he just couldn't make the transition, and his star really, really dropped quickly. He also, by the way, married a huge movie star named Mary Pickford, and they bought a house together that became known as Pickfair. 
So it was an early, perhaps the first example of a celebrity couple portmanteau. Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Pickfair. Huh. There is nothing new under the sun. But Zorro, anyway, is a bad motherfucker. My words, not theirs. The movie starts, it's just 10 minutes <laughs> of people sitting around in a bar going, Hey, you know who's awesome? Zorro. And then the one guy in the bar who's like, I don't think Zorro is awesome. Well, guess what happens next? Zorro shows up and shows him just how wrong he is because it turns out that Zorro is a bad motherfucker. My words, not theirs. Zorro spends about two-thirds of the movie casually kicking ass. And again, like James Bond, casually he expends... No real effort whatsoever. He always knows he's going to win. He's always the coolest dude in the room. That's two-thirds of the movie. The other one-third of the movie is, of course, women lining up to fuck him. And it's 1920, so you can't show much. And <laughs> in fact, there are scenes of him just courting women because you couldn't, like, they don't fuck in a spaceship like in Moonraker. They, he has to court women, Ugh. in my opinion, not the most fun scenes, but people liked it. These movies were hits. And before Thomas Edison's blasted contraptions showed up and added sound to movies, thus ruining them and also Douglas Fairbanks' career, Douglas Fairbanks had about a decade of being the baddest motherfucker on the planet, which is more than most of us get. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the version of my Substack for people who know, not think, but know that reading is overrated. So you do not need to go to my Substack at imightberwrong.substack.com, though you could, but you don't need to because you've got the podcast, and here I am saying the words to you instead of forcing you to read so that you can experience a faint hint of what passes for entertainment these days while you, you know, fold laundry or do the dishes or something. Today's episode, oh boy, oh boy, I got a stupid one for you today. Look, here's the thing. I'm interested in politics. I always have been, but sometimes I just want to write comedy. We live in this weird era where comedy writers are supposed to have jazzy takes on the Electoral Count Reform Act, and I often am... One of those comedy writers, if you go through my Substack, I got no shortage of jazzy takes on the Electoral Count Reform Act. Pass it is my opinion. But sometimes I just want to write comedy like I saw on Conan and Monty Python growing up, except obviously not as good because I do not have that level of talent. But sometimes I just want to write some dumb crap. And oh, I have written the dumbest possible crap this week. I've got two, I had two very dumb ideas. I thought these are sort of tonally the same. Let me package them together in a two pack of abject stupidity. They're short, so I will present each one to you now. The first one is a quote unquote guest column, and it's called Is It Weird That I'm Still Alive? Subheading. Could it be related to me being a clone? Authored by Dolly the Cloned Sheep. And this is the part where I normally say, I wanted to write this one because, ugh, no such intellectual wankery today. I just wrote it because I thought it might be funny. Once again, it's called, Is it weird that I'm still alive? Subheading, Could it be related to me being a clone? 
by Dolly the Cloned Sheep. Folks, I am not usually one to make waves. I am typically very happy being an ordinary, everyday sheep. Of course, I do happen to also be the world's first cloned sheep, brought into existence by Scottish scientists in 1996. So, it is with an appropriate amount of sheepishness that I ask, should I still be alive? Because I am. Still alive and kicking up dust at age 26. Which, if you don't know, would be about 215 years old in human years. Now, don't get me wrong. I am thrilled to still be alive. I love life. I enjoy grazing. I enjoy bleating. I enjoy flocking with the other, not summoned into existence by science, sheep who live on my farm. But I have noticed that my lifespan does seem to be substantially longer than theirs. Sheep typically live about 10 years. I have seen three full generations come and go in my time. There is no question that I am an outlier. The only question is why. Now, maybe it's because I stay fit and eat right. I still produce as much wool as I did when I was six. But I cannot help but wonder if it could possibly be because I was synthetically derived in an act of hubris that many people interpreted as spitting in the face of God. Here's another thing that causes me to raise an eyebrow. I have developed the capacity for speech. From what I can tell, this is highly unusual for a sheep. Now, I grant you, I have no data here. My perceptions are based purely on casual observation. Honestly, hard science is lacking in this area. I have never seen a metadata analysis of the prevalence of advanced speech in ruminant mammals, despite the fact that I've subscribed to nature for 20 years. The point is, I have never met another sheep that can speak. Not even a couple of words. I have never heard another sheep say more than just bah, or occasionally hoof. Meanwhile, I not only have the capacity of speech, but I have also been published in Harper's five times under the pen name Marine F. McHugh. And then there's this. I am fluent in Russian despite never having heard the language. Is that weird? It seems weird to me. While I'm on the topic of weird things, and I hesitate to even bring this up, but I also never stopped growing. Never stopped. I went from embryo to lamb to sheep and just kept getting bigger in a linear fashion for 26 years. I am now 170 feet tall, shoulder to hoof, and I weigh north of 20 tons. On a clear day, I'm told I can be seen from downtown Glasgow, and my droppings alone are twice the size of a regular Dorset sheep. Occasionally, we will have a visitor on the farm. Somebody will wander in. They typically begin screaming in terror upon spotting a sheep taller than the Statue of Liberty feasting on Volkswagen-sized haystacks. When this happens, I don't want them to be afraid. I 
try to calm the situation by calling out to them in my thunderous voice that echoes through the Scottish hills. And I say, greetings, stranger. Tis I, Dolly the Cloned Sheep. That usually does not calm them down, which I will admit hurts my feelings a little bit. Am I this way because I'm a clone? I can't help but wonder. I certainly don't want to seem anti-science, and I do understand that correlation does not mean causation, but it only seems logical to wonder about a connection between multiple highly unlikely events. If you were visited by aliens today, and then sprouted wings tomorrow, you would not be crazy to wonder if those two things were linked. And look, maybe that is not an apples-to-apples comparison. I honestly struggle to find an apt comparison to my situation. Though, let me add, I do also have wings. Big, leathery bat wings, each one 100 feet across. I really wish I could discuss... My situation with the scientists who created me, but unfortunately, they have all either joined the clergy or committed suicide. So, since my creators are unable to provide any answers, I would like to use this as an opportunity to extend an open invitation to scientists who would like to study my existence. Maybe it's possible to determine... If my providence is responsible for my longevity, my size, my capacity for speech, and of course, my tennis court-sized bat wings. I also welcome scientific inquiries into other traits that I possess, including but not limited to echolocation, heat vision, underwater breathing, the force, glow-in-the-dark udders, shape-shifting, perfect pitch, and the ability to predict major world tragedies up to three years in advance. So, that invitation stands. And in the meantime, back to being a sheep. And though I may be a possibly immortal Mount Rushmore-sized sheep who can be found soaring through the Scottish Highlands, blasting boulders with the lasers I shoot from my eyes, I'm still a sheep. Still a sheep all the same. I may be unusual, but hey, you know what? So was Einstein. In fact, I kind of wonder what Einstein would have to say about my situation. You know what? I actually think I might ask him because, though I don't think that I mentioned this, I can also speak to the dead. End scene. You are probably thinking, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, hang on. You haven't heard the second piece yet. The second piece is another fake guest column, ostensibly authored by George R.R. R. Martin, who is, of course, a real person, so I will probably get sued. Except that I have actually heard he's pretty cool, so maybe I won't get sued. Anyway, the title of this one, and believe me, it needs less than no explanation. The title is, I will publish the winds of winter as soon as I am done describing all the boobs. Subheading, and not a moment before. By fake George R. R. Martin. My upcoming novel, The Winds of Winter, 
has been called the most eagerly anticipated novel of all time. I am greatly humbled by this interest. When I started the A Song of Ice and Fire book series more than 30 years ago, I honestly never could have imagined the passion it would inspire. Now, after five novels, a wildly popular TV adaptation, and fan fiction that could plausibly be called its own literary genre, this epic story is reaching its apex. I owe it to my fans to give this opus the ending it deserves. And that's why I am giving all of you my solemn word. I will not publish The Winds of Winter until every last pert, glistening boob in this epic story is described down to the smallest detail. There are four elements to a great story. Plot, character, world, and tits. Each element, if done properly, reinforces the others. The world inspires the characters. The characters prove their mettle via the plot. The plot, in turn, reinforces the world. And each element gives you an excuse to write about the big, heaving hooters that move books off the shelves. Any writer worth his or her salt knows this. I have been honing my craft since the 1970s. When I look back at my early work, I honestly, I have to laugh at how much I still had to learn. My characters back then, uh, they were wooden. My plot points, they were forced. My world's lacked the vivid detail that would characterize my later work. Just about the only part I was getting right was the boobs. At the risk of sounding conceited, my knocker description game was pretty much on point from day one. For all the faults in my early work, you cannot argue that it lacks florid descriptions of colossal bear bazongas because it does not. I don't think it's self-serving to say that I have been pretty much going from peak to peak, no pun intended, as far as committing detailed accounts of primo jugs to print is concerned. I have, of course, grown as a writer over time. Over the years, I have conjured iconic characters like Tyrion Lannister and Lady Stoneheart. I have engineered shocking plot twists like the Red Wedding, and I have imagined an entire world that is continents-wide. Yet, the most potent weapon in my literary arsenal continues to be my ability to render melons so vividly you would swear you were groping them in a dank medieval brothel yourself. And though many consider my early renderings of sweater puppets to be the zenith of the art form, I remain tireless in my pursuit of perfection. I owe the art no less. To wit, did Michelangelo stop after painting the Sistine Chapel? Did Mozart write The Marriage of Figaro and then decide, eh, good enough? No, no, they did not. And neither will I rest while so many hefty, jiggling tatas remain tragically undescribed. I am happy to report 
that the winds of winter contains not only the most, but also the best bazooms that I have described to date. I think fans are going to love my new ideas for boobs, but very good is simply not good enough when it comes to putting the capstone on this epic tale of fire, ice, and bodacious racks. That is why I have devoted 14 hours a day, six days a week, for the past 11 years to describing every single fun bag in the Seven Kingdoms right down to the very last nipple. It has been grueling work, and much remains to be done, but I refuse to quit. Honestly, the other parts of the book are uh, pretty much finished. I mean, yeah, 100%, I would say. I had the characters and story basically entirely worked out by the time I published A Dance with Dragons in 2011. By 2012, I'd say the novel was pretty much done. Done except for the Hooter descriptions. So, I have spent the last decade polishing that element to a high shine. My progress has been... Uh, fairly steady except for six months in which I got writer's block while trying to describe one of Melisandre's nipples. Nonetheless, I refuse to rush this process. I believe that even the smallest choice can prove critical. For example, in the scene where Daenerys is impregnated by the Night King, I uh, should have said spoiler alert, Oopsie-daisy. Anyway, in that scene, should Daenerys' breasts be described as willowy or supple? I have gone back and forth a thousand times. I feel that willowy better captures their rather substantial carriage, while supple invokes a more tactile experience. Mind you, This one adjective is in addition to five pages of grandiloquent boob prose. But that in no way lessens my determination to get this single word right. I lost basically all of 2021 to this single question. And if it takes me another year to choose the right word, well, then I say, so be it. Now, rest assured, when the knocker descriptions are complete, The winds of winter will be rushed to press. And only 917 melons remain to be described. So the book is imminent. I'd say it'll be just a few more years, possibly a decade or two at the outside. I know that my fans are eager to experience the final stages of this story, but I am equally aware that a book that fails to deliver exhaustive descriptions of milk monsters would disappoint. I am sure that devotees of the series would want me to execute my vision down to the very last areola, even if that means waiting years or decades and running the risk of me passing away with the story unfinished. The only copy of the finished except for the boobs manuscript of The Winds of Winter remains securely locked in a safe whose combination is known only to me. This guarantees that a book that fails to describe the shape, the malleability, and the oiliness of every blouse clown from Winterfell to Carth will never see the light of day. That is my vow, 
to my loyal fans. I will never let you down. I remain committed to this project and will work tirelessly towards its completion, even if I have to sit at my desk writing lurid descriptions of cuddle puppies for the next 30 years. And that is the very, very stupid episode. I wonder if I made Earth dumber with the existence of this episode. Have you ever heard of the Flynn Effect? The Flynn Effect is the observation that over time, scores on IQ tests go up. Like, as a society, over time, the mean, the median of IQ tests, it goes up. We are getting smarter as a society. I I am wondering if I possibly just single-handedly reversed the Flynn effect with this podcast. If you listened all the way through this episode, I recommend that go take an IQ test. I mean, just for science, just so they can observe what has happened to your brain in the brief time it took for me to pretend to be a cloned sheep and then pretend to be George R.R. Martin talking about boobs. Just... You might be running a risk if you alert the authorities to the fact that you listen to this podcast. They might take your driver's license away. You might uh, have to cede power of attorney to the state. Uh, But perhaps it's the responsible thing to let someone know that you listened to this podcast because I, I probably just turned your brain into dirt with my stupidity. Anyway... Thank you for shaving a solid 20 points off your IQ here on the I Might Be Wrong podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please do uh, give it a rating, send it to friends, tell people about it. It is completely free for reasons I can't recall right now. They're not all going to be quite this stupid, or at least not quite this intentionally stupid. But I do hope you enjoyed the change of pace. I'll be back next week with another episode. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.